Uh, the idea that there's a central authority that can distinguish true from false, that can ex cathedra on high say, these ideas are true, these ideas are false. And if you disagree, then you're a heretic. You are, you are, you're, you're, you're to be censored and, and, uh, and, and socially put down, um, you know, excommunicated even. Uh, that is a dangerous, dangerous idea. Essentially, it's the return to a dark age. Did lockdowns mark the end of the Enlightenment era? Two years after the Great Barrington Declaration, I sat down with one of its eminent authors, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor at Stanford University Medical School, a physician, epidemiologist, health economist, and public health expert. We discussed the immense harms and collateral damage of lockdowns, the crushing censorship of scientific debate and scapegoating of perceived opponents, the deification of science and the philosophical underpinnings of our societal response. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure to check it out on Apple, Spotify, Google, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also check out AIER's new YouTube channel here. Okay, well, great. I'm so happy to be here with you, finally speaking, you know, not in person, but at least across this medium, which has uh, blown up throughout the last two and a half years. So welcome to the show, Jay Bhattacharya. Thank you, Kate. Pleasure to be here. Awesome. So today is actually the second anniversary of the Great Barrington Declaration, which was written by three fringe epidemiologists, according to Francis Collins and Anthony Fauci. Um, you guys have really been through the ringer. You've been smeared. You've been censored by big tech. Uh, you've really put your necks out in order to defend um, public health principles that have been long withstanding. And um, so I'd just like to talk about that and a whole bunch of other things. So maybe you can uh, start with explaining you know, the, the Great Barrington Declaration, how it came to be, and what you expected to be the response to that. Sure. So the Great Barrington Declaration, uh, it's a very simple idea. It's, it's basically a articulation of the old pandemic plan. Uh, the idea is that uh, you identify who's at most high risk, you know, the, the vulnerable, the, and, and then focus protection on them. And for the rest of society, attempt to disrupt and panic as little as possible because the disruption itself causes more harm than good, the health, the well-being. Um, that, so that's the basic idea of the Great Branch Declaration. It, it's, it's in many ways the least original thing I've ever worked on. Uh, I, I, uh, I aspire as a scientist to write, uh, I, I hope, uh, original ideas uh, and get them published in journals. But um, ironically, the most uh, the, the, the thing that I've worked on in my career that has resonated the best is probably the least original thing I've ever done. Um, uh, but that's actually not bad. I mean, the, the, the purpose of the Great Branch Declaration really was to tell the world that the lockdown-focused strategy we had been following was a bad mistake, that it was a, a deviation from the old pandemic plan that had worked for dealing with respiratory viral pandemics for a century. Um, it started, uh, basically, my friend Martin Kuldorf rang me up one evening in September uh, and said, Jay, I, I got it. I got a, uh, I'm, I'm organizing a little conference in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, at, at, and uh, would you come and would you be willing to come? It, and I'm like, when is it? Oh, it's uh, it's in a week and a half. I'm like, okay, whatever Martin says, I'm willing to do. <laughs> um, uh, and he he'd invited Sinatra Gupta from Oxford University, who I respected deeply, but I never had met before. Uh, so I jumped at the chance. 
um, uh, when uh, the, the the plan was to invite some journalists and us and uh, the three of us, and we would have a little mini tutorial press conference where we tell journalists about what infectious disease epidemiology really was about. Um, uh, we when we arrived, we decided that we were going to write a, something about what our thoughts were on how to manage the pandemic. You know, it turns out we'd arrived basically from three slightly different angles at the same place. Uh, the focus, the idea of focus protection, the idea of lifting the lockdowns in order to maximize the, and improve the health of, of children and other less vulnerable people who were being harmed by them. Um, the, uh, the, so we wrote this document, uh, and, uh, you know, we, we showed it around to, to folks and it was, it, it was, I mean, the, I have to say, I was very surprised by how positive the reaction was in, uh, internally. Uh, there was a Lou Eastman, I think, at, at AIER put the document on a web page, uh, allowed people to sign on, and it just exploded. Like a huge number of scientists and epidemiologists and, uh, and uh, just started signing on tens of thousands in just a few short days, 10,000, I think. Uh, now it's like 40, 50, 60,000. I lost count. That's at like 960,000, I believe. For, for those are for like regular regular people who sign up. I know something you know there were many of those regular people are like quite prominent in their own fields, you know, physicists, and, you know, whatnot. Um, and so, so it was it was extraordinary uh, to me that that there was this this, this deep interest. I mean, I, I guess I I mean I, I knew that people were unhappy with the lockdown, but I, what I didn't understand really at the time was that they were looking for some articulation by reasonable people that. That those views were not were not fringe. Um, that in yeah. fact they were uh, a, a, a important mainstream view within infectious disease epidemiology, which I knew for a fact. I I, th- I have to confess, Kate, at the time I I actually thought that we were a minority view. Uh, mm-hmm. In retrospect, after what's happened, I'm not sure that's true. I think I, I think that 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 in fact the Great Grant Declaration, the ideas in it, were always. Uh, something close to the majority view. And in fact, what has happened over the last two and a half years is that a minority view has taken over the uh, controls of pandemic policy, pandemic planning, used tools of censorship, fear, smearing in order to get their way uh, and create an illusion that they were in fact the center when they were in fact, in fact, always have, have been the fringe. Yeah, well, you know what, that actually makes a lot of sense because this was the way that people did things for so long before. So it was actually the lockdowns that were strange, the NPIs, as they called them, all of these restrictions and things that were strange and that were kind of fringe. You know, like the Great Barrington Declaration was not about putting stickers on the floor or putting up plexiglass shields and all of these, you know, very bizarre uh, things that that we've never done before, right? So, so it does make sense in a way, and it sounds like this is kind of like a technocratic approach, right? Where you have these experts at the helm, uh, you know, the heads of these organizations, the FDA, the NIH, the CDC, the World Health Organization. They're all at the top, and they're directing everything downwards, you know. And if we look at Hayek, for example, in The Use of Knowledge in Society, he talks about local knowledge and he talks about how everything works best when it's more decentralized and you have, let's say, local hospitals working with the best kind of measures that they could use in their 
a particular situation that local people would understand best how to how to mitigate things, but the complete opposite happened, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think both parts of that are, are really uh, really right, Kate. So on, on the on the one hand, you had uh, the center, you had uh, Francis Collins, the head of the National Institute of Health, four days after we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, writing writing the email that you referred to, uh, in fact, like you know, weekly that we. We're fringe epidemiologists, three of us, me, Martin Kuldorf of Harvard University and Sunetra Gupta of Oxford University, you know, Stanford, Harvard, Oxford, that we were fringe epidemiologists, uh, and then calling for a devastating takedown of, of, of the premises. And what happened next was essentially a smear campaign. Uh, you know, reporters started calling me, asking me why I want to let the virus rip. Essentially, why did I want to kill grandma? Uh, the center reacted really, really negatively to it as, it, as if it were an existential threat. Three. Yeah. I, I mean, if they're right, we're fringe. Why even bother? Uh, I mean, the the, uh, the 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 they were, I think, embarrassed to, to that somebody had spoken up and said, "Look, this was a great mistake that we had made during the lock to, to impose this uh, society wide lockdown." And on the other side of this, you you speak of local knowledge. That's exactly what the Great Barrington Declaration was calling for. How, how do you do focus protection? Um, I mean, we know from the epidemiology that there is a thousandfold difference in the risk of severe outcomes from this infection if you're older versus if you're younger. Uh, it's a real threat, this disease, if you're older, at least, you know, at least uh, before uh, in, in October 2020, it certainly was. Um, whereas if you are younger, it's much less of a threat. In fact, uh, for children, there are many, many threats in their lives that are much worse caused by the lockdown than the disease yes. itself. Yes. Um, but the but the details of how do you accomplish focus protection, that those details are a, are dependent highly dependent on local knowledge, right? So it's going to uh, be very different in downtown LA, whether whether and 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 Los Angeles, where there's many many uh, 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 working class people living in in uh, smaller homes in uh, multi generational communities. Um, versus in Billings, Montana, where, you know, there's a lot, lot more, uh, a, a, a lot less of those monthly ethnic homes and seniors living alone or places like nursing homes. It'll depend on the physical infrastructure of the places where people are living. There's going to, it's going to require deep local knowledge far beyond what I have. Um, and the idea of the Great Grant Declaration wasn't to put out a complete plan in every detail in every community in every place. The idea of the Great Brenton Declaration was to engage local public health in a conversation. To It was a call to creativity to ask, how do you protect older people in your communities? How do you protect vulnerable people in your communities? How do you protect people who have you know, certain chronic conditions that make them at higher risk? How do you maybe restructure the nature of work so that uh, younger people who are lower risk can continue to, continue to work and then find ways to accommodate older, higher risk people when disease is spreading rapidly, for instance. Um, deploy resources, whatever that, whatever they are, uh, therapeutic resources, uh, preventive resources, whatever they are in places where they'll make the most difference. Um, and, uh, the, the, the principle with one of, in effect was freedom, right? The idea wasn't to force people into, uh, confined older people into, into quarantine camps or some such nonsense. Uh, the idea was to, provide tools, resources, and knowledge that they could protect themselves and others um, with those those, uh, the, those those resources, rather than trying to impose a lockdown, which uh, devastated the poor, the, the, the vulnerable children and the working class. 
Yeah, I'm actually really glad that you clarified that because that's one critique uh, that I had in my mind about focus protection because I wasn't sure exactly what that meant in practice. And if you think about it in terms of, you know, the benevolent technocrat, you know, who does the other thing who says, no, 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 I have a better plan than you do. And that's not what the Great Barrington Declaration was. It was really like, here are some ways that you can organize. Here are some suggestions um, at how you can organize your local municipal levels and figure out what's what's the best strategy. Because I would argue that people inherently know what to do, like individuals know what to do. If we look back in 2018, 2019, 1990, you know, if you were sick um, and you showed symptoms of being sick, you weren't going to go visit your grandmother, right? Like this was just <laughs> common sense. You know, and that's how people tended to function. But now we've kind of thrown all the common sense out the window and people are using plexiglass, you know, and stickers on the floor and other things that they think protect them. And so I think you wrote about this as well. So then they end up getting closer to people who are vulnerable um, by using kind of these magical tools of protection that aren't actually efficient. And then you have, you know, um, washing hands and, and things that are known to work and staying away from people when you're sick, which people are not doing anymore. They'll just put on a mask. They'll go out. They say, you know, I have COVID, but I'll still, I'll still go and, and, and see my grandmother kind of thing. I mean, the, the, the key thing is that um, the attention budgets of people are finite. Uh, if you give me a list of a, a thousand things that I need to focus on every single day, uh, in order to stay healthy, I'm not going to focus on a thousand things. I don't have the attention span. No one really does. Uh, my, uh, and my entire life will be focused on those thousand things and, uh, and, and not on any of the other 10 million things that are important for me in order to thrive as a human being. Um, and so when you, in public health, you basically have to focus attention on the highest yield things in, in, uh, in, in settings where it matters to people. Right. So when you do pandemic theater, when you uh, push people to do things that are really low yield and yet they have to tick it off one more one more thing to tick off the box, um, you're going to essentially divert attention for the high yield things. And that's what yeah. we did. We absolutely yeah. did that. We uh, we focused attention on uh, masking toddlers, making sure two year olds were masked up for some reason, which there's no evidence that that does anything for anybody. It probably harms the kids. Um, yes. You, that you, uh, you, we focused attention on, uh, treating other people as biohazards. I mean, that's essentially the principle of lockdown, right? The, the, the basic ideology of the lockdown is that other people are biohazards. Um, and that itself has had deleterious, deep deleterious consequences in how we think about other human beings. It's led to social, uh, like it's destroyed social cohesion, um, it, it, you know, in ways that public health really should never do. Public health has a deep responsibility for the power that it has. Uh, people are, I mean, health is something that's deeply important to people, and our, uh, our, our we're sort of built to to fear for our threats to our health. Um, yes. The goal of public health, and especially other people. Right, the fear of infectious diseases is, is a primal thing. Civilization tempers that fear, uh, reduces the 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 the, 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 the perceived harm from interacting with other people because, in fact, interacting with other people is a source of great positive 
outcomes. It's how we thrive as humans. We're not actually made to be alone, even though we may fear others. And when public health uh, accelerates our fear of others, encourages us to think of each other as biohazards, it's done a great disservice. Have you heard of René Girard? Are you familiar with him and his work? I, I am, yes. Right, so the scapegoating mechanism, right? And he talks about during times of plague, historically, that's when you see people turn on each other. They'll turn on a group. Um, you know, all of their fears mount and they want to relieve their, their tensions, um, you know, and their, and their competition with, with each other over scarcity, basically. And then they'll say, oh, we have to, you know, attack this group. And that's what ended up happening as well. You know, in the last two and a half years, there was, um, just the, the social cohesion just fell apart and people started getting really angry at each other and targeting certain groups or certain individuals. And that happened to be, um, the dissenters, right? The people who perhaps were more rational actors or, you know, who wanted to go back to a time of normalcy, um, they ended up being attacked. And that that includes uh, you and Martin and Sinatra, everybody who, who wrote the Great Barrington Declaration and people who ascribed to those ideals. Um, so what was that like for you during that time professionally? Uh, I mean, I guess I had read Gerard when I was uh, when I was much younger. Uh, the, you know, the idea is mimetic. Uh, we, we copy each other in our desire for things, uh, but, but the things we want, we can't all have. Like so, the, so the desire there here was perfect safety from this virus. Yes, the mimetic desire, and and we uh, then adopt all of the the things that we we, we because we, because this this desire is irrational we there's no possible way to be truly safe from a, a virus that's highly highly infectious the way that uh, covid is um but, and so therefore we all face this common risk uh well we just it's like a we 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 uh, essentially treat each other as biohazards in a in a in a bid to stay away from the virus right that and so when uh as someone speaks up says look um, these things that you're doing are incredibly destructive. Uh, you won't, it won't keep you safe from the virus. Um, the, the scapegoating mechanism is exactly what happened here. Uh, yeah. instead of trying to look at this proposal we put, put forward in a rational, reasoned way. In fact, what we were calling for was a conversation. We didn't put out a 5,000 page plan. We put out a one page, uh, page, uh, uh, argument for a change in principles for how I managed the pandemic. Um, obviously a call for conversation. Uh, instead of actually entering that conversation, the, the, the center treated us as if we were enemies. That there was something that, that just, just by fact, the very fact that we were speaking, we were putting the entire community at threat. I started getting accusations of wanting to let the virus strip. I, I saw Tony Fauci make that, that accusation. Public health, the top of public health, used the scapegoating mechanism in order to expel the heretic, us, um, you know, relegate us to the fringe. Um, it was not a rational action. It was an action uh, of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a group of people that I think um, understood that they, what they had done during the, the, lock, the early lockdown was really a violation of norms. And they were scared. Now, they're still scared. Uh, that, that, that people will come to think that they made an enormous mistake. Um, I have to say, I, I don't think the solution 
to this kind of scapegoating mechanism is also scapegoating. I have no interest in that. Uh, I think the solution to this is actually forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness, though, that involves a understanding, uh, a, a, a thorough and truthful acknowledgement of error. And, yes. uh, so the, the, the kind of, uh, the kind of thing I think ought to happen next is, uh, not finger pointing at mistakes by, by individual people and mistakes made. Although, you know, if, if someone committed a criminal act, that's another thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I do think that we have to have in, in medicine. We t- uh, there's a, a an idea that there's a there's a sort of procedure when a patient dies. What happens is you uh, the doctors that were involved in the managing the patient, the nurses are involved in managing the patient, will get together in a conference called the Morbidity and Mortality Conference, an M and M conference. And uh, during that conference, there's a frank discussion about what went wrong, what led to that patient's death. But the goal isn't to like say, look, this doctor A did something really, really bad. We should expel the heretic. Um, the, the the goal is to say these were the things that were, were mistakes. Let's not make them again. We have to have that kind of conversation. We owe the world that, uh, even if it is the case that uh, some very, very prominent and previously beloved public figures made made those mistakes. We actually that we owe the public that conversation. Yeah, and I, I don't think the goal should be to. Uh, you know, it makes me honestly uncomfortable when people talk about Nuremberg trials and things like that. It's just, it, I don't think that's constructive. What ends up happening there is it just brings people into a defensive state when what really needs to be happening again is a conversation about what went wrong so we don't do it again. Yeah. I think um, that what happens though, right, is when people do get sca- scapegoated, um, they get angry as well, you know, and they go on the defensive and, you know, they want to see justice and some people cross that line into revenge um so you know there's there's a lot of a lot of bad feelings on on either side in a sense um so it's it's understandable to me uh, it's not uh, necessarily something that i would call for but i do think that there definitely needs to be justice and it's important to to point out the difference between those two things and it looks like this might be something that you're seeking now in your lawsuit that you have. Um, and Anthony Fauci is named in that lawsuit and the federal government, I believe. Do you want to get a little bit into the details of that and what's going on there? Sure. Uh, so I think the tools that were used to suppress the the the, the, the ideas of the Great Grant Declaration, actually uh, many, many uh, ideas that opposed public health uh, sort of orthodoxy during the pandemic, the tools that were used were entirely inconsistent with how liberal democracy ought to function. In particular, the uh, the, 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 federal, the U.S. federal government directed social media in, to help social media. These ideas are verboten. These ideas are outside the norm. These are these people, in many cases, are, 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 are too fringe to even allow on your platforms. Uh, essentially, the federal government directed a propaganda campaign. And I have to say uh, that social media cooperated with it. I mean, it's not as if they were unwilling. Um, uh, but but in I believe that in, uh, in a liberal democracy, government has an obligation to allow debate to happen openly. Uh, when you're talking about public health, the, the, the Great Branch Declaration was not such a dangerous idea that it should be 
essentially excised from the public square with with tools that usually you would you would leave only for these the the, the uh, uh, you know either authoritarian governments use routinely or you 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 keep out because they're they're going to lead to directly uh, the threat of a, like an individual life or something right so like if uh, you, yeah. You, yeah. you might leave out actual physical yeah. harm yes. yeah uh, what you have instead is a debate over principles that wasn't allowed to happen because it contradicted public health orthodoxy. That is so far outside the bounds of what liberal democracy ought to be doing uh, that that it, it, it really does call for uh, is some sort of acknowledgement and then correction. And so the lawsuit yeah, first initially filed by the uh, attorney general's offices of Louisiana and Missouri, these, this lawsuit seeks to find what was the nature of the uh, censorship regime that the U.S. federal government actually imposed. And we've there, and there we've actually made a lot of progress. We've uncovered documents, uh, from the discovery in this lawsuit of a dozen of federal agencies cooperating very closely with the, uh, social media and big tech, essentially saying, here are the ideas you should censor from your, from, from your public conversation. Um, and, and, and then, um, uh, and that includes, I think, Tony Fauci, where he had a, he shared phone numbers with Mark Zuckerberg, the head of the CEO of, uh, of Facebook. Um, so you, you have this incredible, well, probably the most, if not, if not, if it's certainly peacetime, the most, uh, intrusive policy by the federal government in terms of First Amendment violations in, in American history. Uh, maybe, I don't know. I'm kind of. <laughs> I'm sure maybe the alien insurrection acts are, I, I don't know, I don't know history well enough to, to, to say that with certain, but certainly <laughs> but in my life. let's say at least one of them, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, just brazenly done, uh, almost out in the open, as if they were proud of it. Um, if the courts don't acknowledge that as a First Amendment violation, then it, to me it's unclear what, what the Bill of Rights in the United States actually means. It's just a piece of paper. Um, we have to have the ability to, to talk with each other without uh, big media and government putting its thumb on that conversation in science and in public health. And uh, yeah. that's the, we've not had that during the pandemic. Yeah. And, you know, you see this all over, you know, any opinion that any regular person posts on Facebook or on Twitter or anything else as well. You know, it's just becoming this culture of silence and quashing dissent and censorship of anything that pretty much goes against the regime, you know, or, or goes against the ideas of, of this kind of, you know, woke ideology. We're seeing the same thing now with climate change. You know, I, I did a video a couple of weeks ago for AIER on the energy crisis in Europe, right? And everything in there was presented as fact. And um, it was, there was a warning, you know, climate change, refer to the UN to find out about climate change. And you're not even allowed to debate these things anymore. You're not allowed to, to speak about them. And it's very dangerous uh, because COVID seemed to be the Trojan horse to normalize that kind of behavior. And now we're seeing that moving forward, this has indeed become the new normal. That is really uh, the lingering side effect. That's like the long COVID, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> is is this kind of censorship um, that is pervasive. 
Yeah, I mean, it, uh, Martin Kuldorf, uh, in 2020 wrote a tweet, which I still am never going to forget. It, he, he, he said the, the, the enlightenment, in fact, the enlightenment has ended. Um, if you think back to the, the, uh, the, uh, the, what the key principle that of the enlightenment, what it, what it was responding to was that, that, that there was a, uh, the idea that there's a central authority that can distinguish true from false. That can ex cathedra on high say these ideas are true, these ideas are false, and if you disagree, then you're a heretic. You are you are you're you're, you're, you're to be censored and and uh, and and socially put down, um, you know, excommunicated even. Uh, that is a dangerous, dangerous idea. Essentially, it's the return to a dark age. Yeah, uh, and essentially that's what we've adopted. Except now, instead of Catholic priests. Or the, or the, or the, or the Pope being the one in charge of deciding what is true or false. We have instead a different orthodoxy, a different, uh, a different sort of, uh, 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 clarity that decides. Public health officials, Tony Fauci, he said to Rand Paul, he said, uh, that if you criticize me, you're not simply criticizing a man. You are criticizing science itself. You think about the hubris of that. Uh, even a group of people to say that would be, you'd look at them and think that they were crazy. I think. Yeah. Um, they're, they're, they're the kind of hubris that would lead somebody to say that, 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 that somehow they're infallible. Um, I mean, I think that's, that is, that tells you a lot about, about, uh, about them and it, and it, it doesn't tell you something good. I mean, what you want is a conversation to occur. Allow that to happen. Even if someone is wrong, um, jo- uh, uh, I think it was, uh, I think it was John Stuart Mill that made this argument that if, even if, if, if I'm wrong and I'm in conversation with you, Kate, um, and well, you correct me. Well, I've done you a favor by allowing you the opportunity to sharpen your arguments, um, so that you can then correct error. And I'm, you've done me a favor because you've corrected me from my, my error. Um, the fact that some people might speak up and be wrong is not a bad thing for science. It's actually quite a good thing for science. Um, Preventing people from speaking, that's a bad thing for science. And of course, it, I, I, don't, I think it turns out that we were right, Kate, about the Great Branding Declaration. I think um, the disease has spread despite the lockdowns. The lockdown harms have been absolutely devastating. And we did not engage in focused protection of the vulnerable. Uh, the you know, very large fraction of people who died are above the age of 65. Like every yes. single aspect of the thing that we warned about has come about. And, uh, and it's, it's, um, you know, I think, uh, if I look back, I just, I regret that we didn't win the, the debate at the time. But it, I think the, the reason we didn't win the debate at the time is because illegitimate means were used to try to suppress the idea from spreading and from that debate to happen, from happening. Uh, and, uh, and I think science needs to look back on it, on how it dealt with these kinds of ideas, um, and reform, or else we really are in a dark age. Well, that was very well said. And, you know, if you think about Carl Jung, he spoke about post-World War II, uh, what happens to man when they they lose their religion. He was talking about that kind of, you know, fall or autumn of the Enlightenment, in a sense. And so they tend to replace it. They tend to fill that void with deifying the state. You know, and we could argue that the science, you know, has become a kind of, a secular religion, but 
the state is kind of running it. And um, you have other things underneath the same umbrella, as I was saying, climate change, and then other ideologies that are more radical. They all seem to fall under the same umbrella of science, though. You know, so um, there seems to be uh, this this religious element to it, as you're saying, where you're committing heresy if you say anything different, if you disagree. And, um, and I think that what's happened with people, if it's true that the majority does in fact agree with the premises of the Great Barrington Declaration and maybe even agreed at the time, what's happening with them is that they've become so afraid of um, the social whiplash, maybe even more than the boot stamping down from on top, is that their neighbor or their colleague or their family member or their friend are going to reject them, you know, if they don't go along. You think about things like the Ash Conformity Experiment, right? Where you have these lines that are different lengths and you ask each individual, well, you know, is this the same length as this line? Well, no, it's not. But the other guy said, and the five people before you said that they're all the same length. And then the guy starts to think, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm seeing this wrong. Maybe they are the same length. Maybe I have a problem. Maybe my eyesight is off. Maybe my brain chemistry is off. I don't know what's going on. Or maybe I should just say that they're the same length because that's what they want me to say. I mean, this is your, your nemesis, right? Um, look, I, I, I think, uh, I think, uh, you know, you can find there's no end of foibles of the human brain and of people. Uh, like, I, I think that's just normal part of being human. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. Um, but we create social systems and science is one great social system to sort of, uh, reduce the harm from the worst parts of those, right? So we, we learn true things by being in conversation with one another. Uh, and you correcting me or, you know, the, 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 uh, the vast, uh, number of wise, wise people before me, I read, I read about and they, and they, they correct me also. Um, you know, you, you have to, uh, these, these systems are, are there in order to, uh, benefit us, uh, like these systems of, 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 uh, of conversation of science when, and when they're disrupted, when they're sort of hijacked in a way, so that a small group of people get to decide for a, a very large number of others, uh, bad things happen. I, I say another thing about science, um, I think it's important. It's not just that free conversation stopped happening inside science uh, during the pandemic, which absolutely did. Like, and again, I think it was, it was that, that was, it was hijacked. Or essentially, people like Tony Fauci and Francis Collins used their power of funding and also of essentially creating social hierarchies in biomedicine to impose their ideas over and above other others. Um, the other thing I think uh, is that science, I mean, I, I love science. I've devoted my life to the scientific, uh, to, to, to working in science. Um, but it, it is not the sum of all human knowledge and wisdom. Um, it has its place. Uh, so when you are asking whether uh, you know, the, wh whether this virus is going to cause a, a lot of harm, uh, you know, mortality risk, you ask scientists to measure that mortality risk. Uh, but science, scientists do not have a monopoly on wisdom. They not, are not able to say, well, if I have to invest in, um, you know, in things, what, what, what principle should I use to invest in? Like, I, I think the principle should be protection of the vulnerable. 
That's a major uh, value for me. But if I'm honest, Kate, that comes out of, outside of science. It comes from other experiences and other 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 systems in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I, I, it's defensible. I believe it's reasonable. I believe it's rational, but it's not scientific. If you ask me to justify why I care about vulnerable people, I mean, I'll, I'm going to talk about my faith. I'm going to talk about what I'm called to. I'm not going to talk about uh, science says you must defend the vulnerable because it doesn't. Science in that, in that sense is amoral. Um, and so you have to have non-scientists when you're designing policies that impact so many people at the table with a fundamental role in the design of those policies. You can't just say, oh, you're a scientist. Tell us what to do. That doesn't work that way. You can ask a scientist, if I do A, what will happen? Will B happen? Will C happen? And the scientists will even give you, if they're, if they're, you know, good, good scientists and, and possible, they'll tell you the answer. Oh, well, B is likely to happen. C may happen, but it's unlikely. Um, and then I have to decide, do I want to do action A or, or not? Right. That goes involve values outside of science. Yeah. Um, and that actually explains as well the uh, moral differences between people who wanted to have lockdowns at all costs you know, uh, despite the fact that it was obvious that this was going to be putting people into poverty, um, putting people into starvation, uh, that this would be killing people, deaths of despairs, um, things like this, that this would be immensely harmful to children, uh, that this would be stressful for families, people who would lose their jobs. And it also separated people, um, you know, into essential and non-essential categories which is actually very Marxist sounding to me. Like it's really, it's it's creating a new kind of class, right? And you often talk about the laptop class, um, which are people who are, you know, like yourself in a sense, right? You're, you're in academia, you're able to um, continue to work. Maybe even for some people, their work circumstances improved. They were able to now work from home. They were able to afford, you know, a home gym or things like that. They could set up uh, different things. They could renovate their house. They could renovate their home office. And maybe this was actually a kind of staycation for some people, that period. And so it was it was very beneficial. Um, but then the burden of disease was, of course, placed upon people who were deemed essential um, who couldn't work from home. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? The harms of lockdowns. There's so many, but yeah, uh, I mean, I think uh, that when you hit it on the head, Kate. Um, the key thing is that they're the, the lockdowns are deeply unequal, uh, and, and they're unequal for simple reasons. Society itself is deeply unequal, right? You have people who have jobs. I think that the estimate in the United States is something like twenty, thirty percent of jobs that could be replaced by work from home, that could be replaced by Zoom. You know, one of the reasons I, I think that we never had a lockdown before is we didn't have this kind of technology we're using to, to interface with each other in such a such an efficient way. I mean, we had uh, Skype before, but we didn't have Zoom. Zoom is a big advance, actually. Yeah. Um, and uh, that capacity to work from home, it didn't pertain to everyone, something maybe 20, 30 percent of the American population. The reason why we didn't have uh, lockdowns in 2009 during the swine flu epidemic is because we didn't have Zoom. Zoom created a lockdown. In some sense. Um, yeah. And uh, the, the, so if you work this through, who lockdown benefited only a relatively small group of people, uh, you know, in the rich West. Um, 
Uh, and the, the the people could could re- afford to work from home, but someone had to help, had to support that lifestyle, keep the electrical lines going, sewage working, water going. Um, someone had to deliver groceries. Someone had to grow food. So a, a whole class of people that keep society going quietly, and we don't even think about it. We, we in the lockdown class don't even think about it. Often, they paid the price. COVID yeah. spread in those groups, even if they were older, they, they were exposed to COVID because they had to work to, 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 for their families. Um, in the poorer parts of the world, this was absolutely devastating, right? So, um, we have, uh, you've heard supply chain disruptions. Over the last 40 years, the world has, has become more deeply interconnect, interconnected as far as trade goes. Uh, you know, since, since the, uh, and what, what's, what's happened is, Poor economies have reorganized their 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 their, their, their economies, their their, their um, workplaces, and so on, in order to fit in with the global economy. And a billion people have been lifted out of poverty over the last twenty years, or last forty years. A billion people, and um, uh, as it's a result partly of that globalization. Well, what happened then? Uh, what, what what happened during the lockdown is essentially that that. That, that lifting of people out of out of poverty that that comes because of the uh, because of a promise we made to, to stay stay connected to each other. Uh, lockdown broke that promise, and yeah. uh, millions and millions and millions, tens of millions of people, of the very poorest people on earth, earning one or two dollars a day or less of income, essentially were thrown into uh, into distress. Uh, the UN was estimating. Early on in the pandemic, in April of 2020, that 130 million additional people would starve as a consequence of the economic dislocation caused by the lockdown. Uh, and while it hasn't resulted in 130 million, I, I do think it's resulted in, in, in extensive starvation, tens and tens of millions of people. In March of 2021, the U, uh, the, uh, there was another UN estimate that 240,000 children had died in South Asia alone as a consequence of the economic dislocation caused by the lockdown. Uh, in Africa, uh, there are stories I've, I've heard of people calling suicide hotlines saying, I can't feed my kids. Uh, I'm, I'm considering, I'm considering committing suicide and, and killing my kids as if, because I don't want to watch them starve. Um, we, we, the cruelty of the lockdowns on the poor of the world is almost impossible to overstate. Uh, and we did this. Knowing it's not as if we didn't have warnings. Uh, the the psychological effect on children uh, is has been devastating. Like you have anxiety and depression levels that are at, at, through the roof of uh, basically everywhere, poor countries and rich countries alike. Um, and especially for children who need socialization, that who need playtime, who need contact with other people uh, in order to develop develop well. Um, we denied them that in the Philippines for two years. Children were not allowed to go outside the house. Uh, so you have a you have a situation where uh, the lockdown violated uh, our the social compact. I think we have where we, at, at the very least, try not to harm the poor. Lockdowns were probably the the, the single worst catastrophe that happened to the poor, at least in peacetime, in 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 my lifetime. You know, um, this is all very devastating, Um, and this will go on and on and on, and we'll continue to discover more information like this and different niches, you know, because the world is so complex, and there are so many 
different niches that have been affected in particular ways. I recall uh, speaking with a friend of mine uh, who lives in a small island in the Malaysias and was saying how because the tourism sector was uprooted overnight, you know, everything just stopped. People lost their businesses, of course, but uh, a large part of their economy was based on tourism. And so what he was explaining was that all of the the children, you know, uh, began being trafficked um, and their families were selling them, you know, essentially as sex slaves. Um, and and this is how they were they were dealing with this. And this is how they were going to put food on their table and unburden themselves of their children. And so, you know, it's, it's devastating. And we see it uh, in the less developed parts of the world and we see it in the Western world as well. You know, there were reports of, in Canada, children, I think they're um, uh, suicidal thoughts in children, you know, not even adolescents in children became a thing for the first time um, en masse. Uh, there was like 25 or 30% of children who, who were reporting this and they were ending up in hospital. And, you know, it's, it's just devastating that, that we've done this to children and that all along the people at the helm of the response to COVID couldn't have been unaware of this. You know, there, this information is out there, you know, so unless you just don't want to look or unless you just don't care, you know, it's very easy for people like Tony Fauci to then play the victim and say, oh, People are attacking me about the lockdowns and I'm just doing my job. I'm just saving lives, you know. Well, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So even if you think that you're doing the best thing, again, this comes back to Hayek. If you have, you know, even the most benevolent dictator, you're still going to have harm done. So no matter what you think that you're doing, if you think that it's the best thing for everybody, you can't possibly know the consequences, the domino effect of this on, on the local level and on the individual level, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, this is, what you're talking about is a law of, 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 of uh, unintended consequences. I mean, the lockdowns were bound to have, if you want to call them unintended consequences, but exactly that. Um, it, like the, the, you mentioned children. I mean, in the United States, young adults, one in four, according to the CDC survey in June of 2021, 2020, one in four young adults had seriously considered suicide the previous month. One in four. Um, the um, the level of psychological, there was child abuse at very high levels, not picked up because schools were closed. The schools are where people normally pick up child abuse so that you can then address it. Um, the 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 in, in Uganda, they closed schools and, and uh, four and a half million children never came back from school, never came back to school after the schools opened. They were just long gone, lost, lost. Uh, you're absolutely right about sexual slavery. A lot of children in the poor countries, in order to feed, feed their families, the, their families sold their children, especially girls, into sexual slavery. Um, these are are obviously not nothing anybody really wants to happen, but they were, and they may have been unintended. But they, a lot of this was predictable. Domestic violence rose. During lockdown, um, they were entirely predictable and should have been accounted for when we were just thinking about whether to adopt this extraordinary policy we followed the last two and a half years. Um, it's still not done. I mean, people are still, a lot of people are still scared. They still act as if they're scared and have disrupted their lives around this. You can see this, 
uh, in, in, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that, uh, many jobs, many, uh, you know, many high, uh, like, uh, high end laptop class jobs in the, in the United States, people still, still have not come back to work. Um, and so I think, um, I, I think the damage done is so great. We will absolutely be counting it for a very long time. Um, I, I think uh, more important to me than just counting the damage, how do we mitigate it? Like, it's not certain, like a five-year-old who should have learned how to read, uh, a, 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 someone who's a kid who's now seven that was, uh, should have learned to read when he was five, uh, but still doesn't know how to read in, in second grade or something. Well, that's not permanent. That's fixable if we put our mind to it. We know that there's a harm. Let's try to redress the harm. Uh, not all the harm is fixable, but some of it is. And I think constructively, that's what we ought to be doing. Thinking of construct, uh, thinking of ways to address the harms that were, had been caused by the lockdown, the psychological harms, the economic harms, the educational harms. Um, and so that the long tail of lockdown harms that is going to come, uh, will be less damaging than otherwise would be. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. You know, we seldom think of that because you're focused on the horror. Like, it's so terrible what has happened and coming to terms with that. It's something that, you know, people like you and I who have been aware of that for pretty much since the beginning and probably many of our viewers as well. But there are other people who are just kind of waking up to that now and maybe are in denial as well about the fact that that this happened to them and that it happened to their kids and that they were in fact victim as well to this, this whole system. Um, so I want to come back to something very, very basic though, and that is the precautionary principle, right? So this is something that of course, you know, MDs learn about, uh, you know, citizens, regular laymen hear about this thing. They might not know exactly what it means, um, you know, and and it seems to be something that can be kind of interpreted in different ways. So for you, how does this apply to lockdowns or or these measures that we've seen? Well, I mean, I think uh, the, the the precautionary principle actually, uh, uh, it's not, it's it, uh, applied correctly, it's actually quite sensible. Um, uh, it's not that you throw out our usual way of thinking about, uh, you know, cost of that. You, know, you, you do a pros list and a cons list, remember, and then you can like figure out what you want to do based on that. You still do that. Uh, the question is, what do you do when there's deep uncertainty about certain outcomes? Right. So what do you do when, when there's a, a new virus? You don't know how deadly it is. You don't know how it truly infects us. You have some data, but it's, it's, it's incomplete. Um, and you're deciding what to do about it. Uh, the uh, precautionary principle says to me, anyways, I think that you're entitled to assume the worst again within, within bounds of, of, of reason about the threat. And you're allowed to say, okay, this threat is going to be really, really bad. I don't know for certain it's going to be really bad, but what if it's really bad? Right. Uh, and then, um, and then design a strategy around it. But what, you're, what the precaution principle does not allow you to do is to assume that the threat, uh, that, 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 the, that the intervention that you're putting in place is going to be costless, that it will work with certainty. Mm-hmm. You have to, especially when there's not uncertainty about that, you put in, in place lockdowns, you are going to cause tremendous damage to the poor of the world. You, it is going to be very difficult for most of the, of the world's population to comply because it's such a cruel policy that only a relatively small group of elite people, the laptop class, that can abide. That's a certainty. There's no uncertainty around that. The precautionary principle doesn't allow you to say, oh, no, there's not going to be cost to the poor. 
Yeah. Um, so you, you, the precautionary principle is limited in the sense that it allows you to assume something about a threat that's coming, assume the worst about a threat that's coming when the, where there's deep uncertainty about it. Um, and, but, but then you still have to do your list of pros and cons and decide whether it's the right thing. I think the precautionary principle properly applied would have cut against lockdowns rather than in favor of it. Yeah. Um, had it been applied properly. Um, and then, and then as new evidence comes, you have to reassess as the uncertainty about what the nature of that threat become uh, from the virus is. You have to reassess. You can't just continually rely on the precautionary principle, assuming the worst, assuming the worst, when new evidence comes in saying, well, it's not the worst. It's, it's bad for older people, less bad for children. Um, well, then you have to, you have to take that into account and, and then change the policy on the basis of that new evidence. Um, precautionary principle is not a get out of jail free card for lockdowns. Well, that's, that's, I guess you're describing in a way, I think, the scientific process as I learned it when I was in school. You know, which was, you go there, you do your experiment, you test your hypothesis, you you want to disprove it even, you want to show that it doesn't work, you want, or you want to be absolutely sure that it does, or do you have to change this variable or that variable back to the drawing board? That's how it goes. There's never just, I am the science, this is the science, and we're done. There's no conjecture, no criticism. Here we go. I mean, th but that's that's what we've seen happen. And I think that this is why, you know, science, capital S, has become this religion, whereas actual science is a process, right? It's a process. Yeah, I mean, there, there's this policy overlay, right? So again, you have this scientific uh, uh, input with a lot of a lot of uncertainty around it in, in February 2020 or something. Um, and a policymaker has to decide, okay, I have this input. Uh, what am I going to do with it? Um, and the, 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 the precautionary principle is a way of dealing with that policy and that scientific uncertainty in the policy process. So I'm, I'm allowed to assume the worst. Um, but then the thing I'm going to do is going to be based on, uh, yes, the worst that I've assumed about the, about the virus. Um, but also the fact that all of these policies are themselves going to have not knock, knock on consequences. I can't just ignore those knock on consequences when deciding what to do, even if the worst about the virus is going to happen. And then you're absolutely right, Kate, as, as evidence comes in and you learn about the virus, all of a sudden certainty sort of starts to resolve and okay, it's over here. Well, then you change the policy, not this, you're going to do that. Right. Um, so you have to, it's policy and science interact in very interesting ways. The precautionary principle is a tool. Or helping helping manage that uncertainty about science, um, but it's not an excuse not to to work on the science um, to reduce that uncertainty, and it's not a, an excuse to maintain a policy that's extremely harmful uh, just because you assume assume that it was going to be okay or justified based on on some some previous uh, previous calculation. Yeah, it's kind of like the worst excuse in the world too. Like if you've wronged somebody, you know, um, which is what has happened on on a on the large scale, you know, people have been wronged. And rather than saying, I apologize, I made a mistake, you know, let's see how we can fix this, let's see how we can change course, uh, it becomes, but I, but I didn't mean to hurt you. So I'm not really going to apologize. I'll give a faux apology, let's say. But there's not even any faux apologies. There's not even any acknowledgement that there was a problem. Like, it's just like now, you know, we've moved on to the next thing. 
And you know, with the news cycle, and I would I would argue even um, that the whole response to COVID uh, couldn't have existed without the the propaganda, as you were explaining it. Um, because you 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 wrote about how in 2019 I saw this on your Twitter uh, recently how in 2019 the blood banks in Europe had shown that there was already between September and November existing COVID in the blood banks right and so you know society hadn't been locked down nobody was aware of it there wasn't I don't think any excess mortality either you know there were people getting sick in in 2019. Um, I actually personally recall uh, getting quite sick. I had this this kind of strange bug that lasted like 24 hours, and then I'm young, I'm healthy, I was okay, you know. But it was a little different than something else. And um, but but maybe this was already there, and maybe if we wouldn't have even known about it, if there would have been no uh, media attention to this at all, uh, then we would have been living in a completely different world today. Yeah, I mean, so the, the the what you're talking about, I think, is the the in um in in blood banks they often store blood with dates. So blood collected in northern Italy uh, has from t- September 2019, as early as September 2019, uh, I don't know, September, October, and November of 2019 has antibodies to COVID. How did they get there? I mean, had to that means COVID was there in early preceded in Northern Italy. And that's not surprising. Uh, Northern Italy had a very early, uh, you know, explosion of cases, right? Earlier than, than the United States, for instance. Um, yeah. If you look in stored blood in Angola, from blood banks in Angola, Northern Africa, you see the same thing. Again, from September 2019, uh, positive antibodies to COVID. Um, so uh, what, what what's happened is it's it's likely that there was a relatively early seeding event, as early as September 2019. Maybe I, mean, I don't know the exact date. I don't think anybody knows the exact date. And you're right, Kate. Now uh, part of that is there is this sort of like early phase, almost exponential, like very very sharp growth in the in the, in the thing. But you have very uh, small numbers, even exponential growth doesn't look uh, noticeable in the population. Um, and so a lot of people, some people probably got it and didn't, didn't know they had it. It had COVID, um, chalked it up to a bug, just, you know, and, and who, who knows that maybe what you had was COVID, maybe it wasn't. It's hardly impossible to go back and tell in time. Um, um, but what seems clear is that there was an early seeding event, uh, from, you know, based on this kind of antibody evidence. Um, and there wasn't, uh, the, this panic. Imagine a world if we had not panicked in September 2019. Imagine a world where, uh, where that, where that result, where, where we had adopted something like the Great Barrington Declaration, where public yeah. health had worked to calm the population and then focused resources on protecting the vulnerable. Uh, I believe that we would have had better results both from COVID and from, of course, the, we would have avoided the collateral harm from the lockdown. Yeah, um, that makes so much sense to me. I do worry, though, that at the same time, you know, the panic might have been inevitable. Um, maybe not, though. Maybe, you know, if the media hadn't given it the type of hype that they did, maybe it would have been avoidable and it would have just been kind of like SARS or H1N1 where some people got a little scared, but most people were like, ah, oh, this is not affecting me. I'm okay, you know. Um, but that that worries me a little bit for focused protection even in the Great Barrington Declaration, that that might be taken into the hands of people even at the local level 
and and they might go a little bonkers with it, you know, and and we've seen that happen with uh, the long-term care facilities for the elderly. Um, you know, there are reports of s some long-term care homes where they took the the doorknobs off of the doors and and locked people in their rooms in Ontario. Um, you know, and I'm sure this happened in other jurisdictions as well. And uh, we've seen as well that many of the COVID deaths, uh, it's possible that they're attributed to the treatments uh, that these that these patients underwent. And, um, you know, I can give you a very personal example, but something like this happened to my grandfather, who is in a long-term care home in Quebec. And, you know, he was there, uh, somebody tested positive for COVID, uh, I think somebody who worked there. So they tested everybody. And then my grandfather tested positive, right? But he had no symptoms. So it was like, okay, he's all right. And then 24 hours later, he was dead. And he had been given morphine. He had been given uh, midolazam, or I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly, but he had been given these drugs that were part of the protocol. And now listen, I know that this was not focused protection. So I just want to differentiate that, make that clear for our audience as well. Um, but what I'm trying to say here is that things went horribly wrong because of the panic, because of the protocols that were put in place. And um, it's hard, I think, to tell if we had left things well enough alone, you know, which is pretty much what the Great Barrington Declaration is about as well. You know, and that's that's how I interpret it anyways. I don't want to put that into, um, put words into your mouth there. But I read that as something that's rational and something that's common sense and something that follows regular protocols since we've been doing for a hundred years. Um, but maybe if we would have left things well enough alone and gone about treating things normally, um, then we wouldn't have had as many deaths because um, it's coming out in reports, right, that many deaths can be attributed to the treatments themselves. I think so. There's a couple of things in there that, that are really uh, interesting, important, I think, Kate. So one is, um, why did we induce panic? Like, what was the purpose of public health working to, to create panic? Uh, and we know they did. Like, so, for instance, in the UK, there was a uh, part, a group called the, the SAGE group, S-A-G-E, um, which is a scientific advisory group for the, for, for the, for the government. Um, official scientific advisory for the government. They had a subunit called a nudge subunit, whose yes. goal was to cause panic, like that, that use behavioral and psychological techniques to cause panic in the population. Uh, you can see in the advertisements the public health did, where essentially they would use young people dying from from COVID uh, uh, to warn warn young people to to comply. The reason, the purpose of the panic was to gain compliance by low risk people, people who are not going to be harmed from COVID. Is create this idea that, that COVID was a threat to you, a young person. Uh, and as well, like the, the empathy was weaponized to gain compliance of young people. If you don't obey the lockdown, you're going to kill your own grandma. Horrible. If you don't wear a mask, you're going to kill, kill uh, everyone around you. You are a biohazard. You're a danger to others. Um, it, all these tools, these psychological tools were used to gain compliance for the lockdown. If you don't need to, uh, if you don't have the lockdown, you don't need to use these tools to gain compliance with it. Uh, the, the, these were a, a piece of one, of, of a tapestry, like one piece need, were needed for the other. Um, yes. 
So I think if you don't do a lockdown, you don't need, you don't need to create the panic. Um, the second part has to do with focus protection. I don't, I don't, uh, I guess, Kate, I don't think about this as we would have gone along, uh, just as, as we normally do. Uh, this is a bad virus. Uh, and it did, it does deserve a real response, a real, a, a serious response in older, older people. Uh, I, uh, that said, I do agree that the, the kind of response it deserved, uh, needed to be measured based on the needs of older people, right? So for instance, uh, extended social isolation for a long period of time is very bad for the health of older people, like bad for everybody, but certainly for older people. Yeah. Um, so balancing infection control spread versus uh, the the need for uh, social interactions, uh, friendships, love um, that that has to be part of how you manage the the, the virus. That has to be part of focus protection. Um, it won't be exactly like you know pre twenty twenty um, life. It just can't be when you're facing a high risk like this for older people. Um, but it but it has to be humane, whatever it looks like. Um, you know, the, the panic, I have to say, for older people was a disaster. Like, I, I saw, I read this story in Quebec that, uh, the caretakers in nursing homes in 2020, March 2020, abandoned their posts, leaving older people to die of starvation and hunger. Yes. The ones with dementia. Yes. Um, the panic affected caregivers, affected doctors. Uh, the, the, uh, why did your father or your grandfather get, get sedatives? It's partly to manage the, the perceived risk that caregivers have that he posed to them. Yes. Um, the, the, the excess use of intubation in the early days of the pandemic. Um, in fact, the whole mantra to flatten the curve is to spare hospital systems because doctors were afraid of getting sick from their own patients. Um, mm-hmm. in March of 2020. That was part of the part of, I mean, it's just to be honest, that was part of the, 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 uh, the, the impetus behind the lockdowns and the flatten the curve. Instead of the principle of focus protection of the vulnerable, identify the other people who are most high risk and work to protect them, we instead adopted a policy to protect hospital systems. Um, we just have to come to terms with that. Normally you would think about hospitals and doctors and the medical care systems serving the public, serving the vulnerable, serving the poor. Um, as that's that's an ideal. Instead, we public health flipped this around and said, "Look, uh, the public needs to engage in uh, in deep sacrifices to protect hospitals, to protect uh, hospital workers." Um, yeah, I'm not saying that it was ne- not entirely. I mean, I, I do think that there's some obligations the public might have. You know, if you say, "Look, be careful about that," there's a lot of like uh, a, a COVID going around. Be careful about visiting grandma. Deliver groceries to, to, to so that older people don't have to go out. Uh, employers give your older employers uh, employees uh, a sabbatical when the disease is spread. I mean, there are obligations we could have uh, we could have, like information and, and uh, support that we could have given to society at large that would have involved some change in activities to mitigate risk where it was the highest. Um, but that's very different than spreading panic to induce compliance in low by low risk people. For a policy that was destined to fail and didn't end up protecting vulnerable people anyways. Yeah, and I think information and support, those are key words, um, because this all has to be voluntary, of course, right? I mean, another another anecdote, I had um, a friend of mine who her elderly father, you know, he used to love and go and play bingo. 
and go grocery shopping. Those were his two social activities, and he was in his 80s. And, you know, at the very beginning, she said, you know what, Dad, if you go out, if you go play bingo, and if you go to the grocery store, you can't come over here and see me and your grandchildren. And that was devastating for him, right? Because he said, and, and, I, and I explained to my friend, and this was very early on, I said, maybe your father values more his social interactions than even his health. Maybe he would rather lead a shorter life. Maybe he'll say, I'll risk it. If I die, you know, in six months, I catch COVID and I die. Well, I wouldn't have died alone and I would have been able to live my life. It's the end of my life. It's supposed to be the golden age. You know, let me decide for myself what I want to do. And I don't know what ended up happening, you know, in that particular scenario, but we've certainly seen that with a lot of elderly people, a very similar um, psychological response to young children, right? Where they, they took the isolation very badly and uh, they were no longer able to cope. You know, um, there were reports of people um, who said, if there's another lockdown, just give me euthanasia because I can't go through this again. Right. And, and I read this article. It was a lady who decided that she would have a medically assisted suicide because she didn't want to do another lockdown. She didn't want to be alone anymore, you know. And um, so those are, of course, um, really important aspects to look at. And, and so I always argue that, that it's difficult, right, to, uh, to draw the line, you know, in public health between what is information without coercion, what is voluntary, what is suggested, and what is a policy that becomes an obligation for people to follow that might have those unintended consequences you were speaking to earlier. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, a, it's hard. Uh, I, I think, um, I, I don't, I guess I wouldn't say that I would say, that I wouldn't say that, that, that I, I'm against all coercion as a principle in public health, but I will say is that if, um, if you go, if, uh, a public health that has the trust of the populace doesn't really need to use coercion very often for, uh, for to implement its policies. Uh, so, uh, so like take the vaccines and vaccine uptake. In Sweden, you have very, very high vaccine uptake without mandates. Why? Because the public health authorities acted in trustworthy ways. And so when public health said, uh, this group really needs the vaccines, that group really, uh, the older people really need the vaccines to protect themselves against high, high, uh, uh, you know, mortalities from COVID. They took the vaccines because they trusted public health. Um, so in a, in a sense, the fact that public health in the United States and elsewhere resorted to this, these kinds of coercive means of mandates and whatnot is itself an indication of failure of public health. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I think, so that's why I think, I'm not, again, it's not, I'm not saying it in principle against it. I think, but as a general matter, coercion should be a tool of last resort in public health because it, by, by its very nature, undermines trust. And that means that other priorities in public health that require trust won't happen. And yeah. so that's why you have to be very careful about using these means. Um, and we're seeing this, by the way, with the uptake of other vaccines like uh, you know, childhood vaccines, like really necessary ones, like uh, the MMR vaccine, measles vaccines, or the polio vaccine. We're seeing a resurgence of cases of measles in, in poor countries. Um, I'm, I'm afraid they're going to start happening elsewhere in the United States and elsewhere as well. 
we saw see the return of polio to the United States. Um, uh, the, the priorities of public health require that the public trust public health for a very large number of things. And as soon as that you start using coercive means, and especially psychologically manipulative coercive means, the trust of the public is going to start to dissipate. Right? And it absolutely has. I think I, I, the trust in public health is as low as I've ever seen it anywhere in my lifetime. And yeah. I honestly don't know how to get it back. Uh, I, I think that it may take a change in leadership in public health for that to happen. Yeah, I think um, a change in leadership, but also um, a change in the paradigm, you know. Um, so let's not maybe use coercion the way that we've been doing it. Let's really support voluntary decision makings. Let's go back to informed consent. Let's go back to honoring the relationship between doctor and patient and that individual relationship, right? Because that's also, um, you know, you were saying how Martin Kuldorf, he tweeted about the, the end of the Enlightenment, um, but a very important principle of the Enlightenment, of course, is uh, the sacred nature of the relationship between doctor and patient, right? Like the Hippocratic Oath is based upon that. Is, is, that, is that not true? Yeah. I mean, there has to be a deep commitment to truth-telling. Doctors, The doctor-patient relationship, the doctor has to be essentially uh, an agent for the patient, much less so an agent for the state um, yes. or, or for public health. Uh, the advice that when you go see a doctor, you should basically be able to trust that the doctor is giving you the advice uh, in order to, to further your health. Um, and if there's a conflict between your health and public health, the doctor, I think, has a responsibility to tell you, here's what's, here's what would be good for your health, but it might harm others. And then, and then I think, uh, I mean, I think the, 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 the absolute commitment to truth telling. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I think, uh, you know, even when the truth contradicts what, uh, what, what, what I want you to do, what, what I think, I think it's better for me to tell you the truth and then you do the thing I don't want you to do than for me to lie to you. Now I have no hope of convincing you because you come back and say, well, why did you tell me a lie? Um, yes. And I think, uh, I think that that's what's happened in public health. Public health has embraced this norm of noble lies in order to manipulate the public to do what they view as virtuous. Um, yes. But I think that that, uh, that was a, a, a violation of, of a basic principle of not just the public health, but of, of, of public policy just generally. Like you cannot, do, if you do that, you shouldn't be surprised when people stop trusting you and then you get deep pushback on basically every single thing you ask them to do, ask people to do. You're just not going to be yeah. able to get the kind of voluntary cooperation that, that avoids the need for coercion. No one wants to be manipulated. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Nobody wants to be manipulated and nobody wants to be coerced. And, you know, unfortunately, in the example that you're giving as well, it's difficult for even individual doctors because they're being put under duress by their colleges, by their organizations, you know, um, by their medical associations, and then the organizations above them to say, well, you need to, you need to follow the orthodoxy once again. So you have to inform your patients what we tell you to inform them. Um, but you you basically have to repeat what we're telling you. 
but you're not allowed to question what we're telling you either. And that uh, causes decay in the doctor-patient relationship as well because they don't feel free in their practice, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a bill in California that was just signed by Governor Newsom called AB 2098. Mm -hmm. And uh, ostensibly what the bill says is if uh, a doctor spreads misinformation to a patient about COVID-19, then that doctor can lose his or her license over that over that act of misinformation spread. And that may yeah. sound like a reasonable thing, but actually what it does is it puts public health in the examination room with you. And so the doctor now no longer serves the patient, but now, now the doctor serves public health uh, over and above the patient. And if they don't serve public health, they might lose their license. Um, uh, now, this would be fine if public health advice were un, in, uh, you know, inerrant. But in fact, during the pandemic, we've seen that public health have gotten a very large number of things wrong uh, about immunity after COVID recovery, uh, about whether the vaccine stopped disease spread, uh, 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 about the infection fatality rate, uh, you know, who is at high risk, how the disease spreads, the, the uh, efficacy of, of, of inadequate masks, uh, the a very large number of, of items that were public health orthodoxy during the pandemic turned out to be false. And yeah. if a doctor who's read the evidence in the, in the scientific literature concludes that, that public health is saying wrong things, uh, and they tell their patient, look, I've read this literature and it, this is, here's what, this is what I believe is true based on my professional understanding. Um, even though the, the powers that be are saying this, uh, here's what the scientific evidence is actually saying. Well, that doctor then now is under threat of losing their license. Um, so what will happen is doctors will censor themselves. Yes. Uh, the, yes. The, the, the conversation that doctors would have with their patients, they'll violate the norms, the goal, the, the, the obligations they have to their patients. And they will also, uh, a scientific conversation will also start to be censored uh, and stifled even more than it has because doctors play a really important role in giving, um, uh, giving feedback about how, uh, you know, I don't know, you write something, you write, you, 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 your scientific body says, oh, you ought to do this for a patient. The doctors then start doing that for the patient. They start seeing something that the scientific body didn't expect. That's what happened with thalidomide and, and, uh, and, uh, and 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 uh, and 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 babies, right? In in the fifty, yes. um, that's yes. how how science and medicine learns, but in part by feedback from real world evidence from doctors. Um, that's going to be silenced. Uh, it's it's it actually is a shocking thing that uh, uh, that that you have a law that is almost guaranteed to end up harming patients, end up harming science, signed by the governor of the state of California. Uh, and, and, I, and I think I think like this, like it's just indicative of where we are. Um, First Amendment protections would normally be enough to say, look, doctors have a First Amendment right too. Yeah. They're, they're not trying to give misinformation to their they're, they're they're trying to give their own sense of what the literature says tailored to the patient. Why yeah. should their license be under threat when they do that in a place in a, in a setting where there's deep uncertainty and about about the science? And the fact is that. The scientific bodies, the public health bodies, got things deeply wrong over and over again. So COVID really, you know, the, the response to COVID has been this Trojan horse uh, to really normalize, again, these kinds of things, to normalize um, 
people censoring themselves and being afraid to say what they actually think and, and being afraid to have debates. Um, because as you said, this is how this is how the process works. This is how you figure out that maybe you were wrong about this, but you were right about that. And maybe this person uh, thinks 80% the same way that you do. So what are you alike on, but where do you differ? And how do you figure out the truth, right? If you're always looking for objective truth, you know, as close as you can get to that, um, then there should be nothing that gets in your way. And, and that's essentially what this is doing is it's, it's deterring, uh, the light, you know, and this is why, again, you can say this is, uh, the case for the end of the enlightenment era, because that light that's there, uh, is being blocked by authorities who are saying, you're not allowed to look there. You're not allowed to even talk about it. Um, because if you do, we're going to come cracking down on you. And then you have this culture of people at all levels who will control themselves, who will rein it in, who will again say the line is the same size, you know, um, because I'm afraid of the social pressure, but I'm also afraid of the boot now. <laughs> so you yeah. have both going on simultaneously, right? I mean, I think the closest analogy to this that I can think of in history is, is uh, in, the, in the Soviet Union, there was a scientist named Trofim Lysenko who believed that if you exposed plants to the sort of cold shock or whatever, um, it would, it, it would they, the, the ones that survived would be like really strong and grow well. And then, so you just you keep planting those, you, you get off into those and you could very rapidly improve Soviet agriculture. Um, Stalin loved it because like all the other biologists were telling him about Mendelian genetics. And how, how difficult it was, how long it was going to take to improve Soviet agriculture. Uh, Lysenko then had the power to send his colleagues to Siberia. And he did. The large numbers of, of scientists, Mendelian geneticists, were sent to Siberia, to the Gulag. Uh, and actually, mo most then Soviet scientists, uh, biologists silenced themselves. And millions of people starved in the Soviet Union because of the, the, the bad ideas Lysenko had that were not corrected by better ideas. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a really dangerous. Now we're not sending people to Siberia. What we are doing is we are taking away licenses, essentially excommunicating people, uh, saying that, look, you, you spent your life trying to learn how to manage patients while you're not willing to do that anymore. Um, I mean, it's, it, it's in effect a social Siberia. That we're, that we're doing. And, and, uh, if you're, if, if doctors don't, don't, uh, march in line in, in, in lockstep. Um, we can call this even the digital gulag in some senses, right? Like I've heard this term before. Um, so it's, uh, it's a way to create a gulag with the new technology that we have, you know, and, and I don't mean to undermine the, the seriousness of going to an actual gulag in the USSR in that time. Um, but we're able to, um, to create psychological torture and conditions, uh, to make people's life basically hell uh, to destroy their lives in other ways without having to subject them to the same types of treatments uh, that we were then. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a social credit system designed it's a, it's, it's, it's a, a, to, to essentially ag exile people who disagree, um, who are on the fringe. Um, yes. The problem is that, that uh, a lot of truth comes out of allowing people on the fringe to, to participate in, the, in those conversations to participate in society. Um, there's a lot of harm, I think, in the long run from that. And if you, uh, the argument I've heard, the counter argument I've heard is, well, okay, yeah, there's some bad, 
misinformation that sometimes spreads. It's true, there is. You know, uh, the vaccines make you magnetic or something, some, 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 something silly. Not true. Um, um, but how do you counter that? You counter that by uh, throwing people who say that into the into the gulag, or do you just say, "Look, this is not true. It doesn't make sense." Um, in fact, there's this weird thing where, like, if you if you highlight nonsense, you actually spread it. You yes. you, uh, you so you you know uh, so some of the craziest things you you know the, the earth is flat. You just don't talk about it because what's the purpose of talking about it? Yes. Um, it yes. just spreads the idea that, that whereas uh, you focus on true things. Uh, if you focus your attention on the on 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 true good th- true true things, you're going to end up with more people believing true things than if you focus your attention on stomping out heresy. Yeah, of course, because then it's hard to tell what's what for people, right? And then they'll be they'll be attracted to everything that is being censored, and you know, not all of that. Some information that's being censored is good information, uh, worth worth thinking about, and other information is total garbage. So it's really difficult for people to then filter through because people are tribal on either side of the debate, you know, and. Um, sometimes they'll say, well, I'll just believe everything coming from this side and I'll just believe everything coming from this side rather than thinking for themselves. Um, again, coming back to Rene Girard, you know, there's um, the minority who gets scapegoated is not um, immune from tribal behavior and, and in scapegoating the other, right? So, <laughs> so uh, actually... Um, you know, I think that we could talk all day. This is, you know, we've been going on for some time now. Um, and this has been really wonderful. And I and I don't want it to end. So I'm just going to, I'm going to throw something at you, though, that I kind of prepared for for the end of our discussion. And I, and I think it's pretty on point. I was watching your uh, recent interview uh, with Peter Robinson of the Hoover Institution, which was wonderful. Um, and at the end, of course, Peter asks you, like, how do we avoid this ever happening again, right? And I was thinking, that's not the question that I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you something something different, and I'm just going to pull it up because um, I think it's pretty relevant. So instead, I wanted to read you this quote, okay? So rather than how do we prevent this from happening again, okay, because... Right now, we're still in the thick of it, as you just mentioned uh, with the California law that's coming into place. Like this, this battle is still ongoing. We're just um, in a different place than we were when you wrote the Great Barrington Declaration with uh, the other two eminent doctors. Um, so I'll quote this uh, Hannah Arendt, Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil, where she says, It is in the very nature of things human that every act that has once made its appearance and has been recorded in the history of mankind stays with mankind as a potentiality long after its actuality has become a thing of the past. No punishment has ever possessed enough power of deterrence to prevent the commission of crimes. So... We can look at that in terms of lockdown. We could look at that in terms of Ursula von der Leyen, European Commissioner, Central Planner, saying now we need to flatten the curve on energy. Uh, we can look at that in the terms of people espousing beliefs about how we'll need climate lockdowns. What are your thoughts, Jay? I mean, lockdown is now a part of the toolkit. I mean, just a, that's just a fact. Um, 
And uh, given that that's a fact, uh, we need to have an honest conversation about the 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 the, the conditions under which we will adopt it. Um, I, I I have a very ambitious goal Kate, on this. Uh, I want to make lockdown a dirty word. I want people when they think about lockdown to shudder in horror because of the harms it'll do to the poor, the vulnerable, children, the working class. I want people to think about lockdowns. Um, in a way that makes them essentially never want to adopt it. Um, that won't come about, I don't think, via legal action or, or even political action. That'll come about by people talking honestly about the, the experience of lockdowns during the, during COVID, the, the, the futility of them. I mean, you know, Almost everybody's gotten COVID. Very large fraction of the population have gotten COVID, despite them. Um, and, and we have all these harms. I think if we restore our ability to talk to each other freely as scientists, if we bring back the enlightenment, lockdowns will be, I think, Hannah Arendt can be proven wrong. I think they can be a thing of the past. Um, but we, if we, but we have to allow that honest conversation to happen without, without suppression the way we had during the pandemic. Um, and that, and I think that will be the outcome of that conversation. I don't see how you look at this evidence and say lockdowns ought to be a tool. Uh, and the set of people that had pushed for lockdowns, um, they, they got their way. They got their way with illegitimate means, I think, panic mongering. So I think, um, those, those are old tools. Those are not, those are not new. Those are, it's often how you win political battles is by, by creating fear about some, some boogeyman and then you, uh, then you uh, rally support around destroying it. That's the Girardian kind of scapegoating idea. I don't think you ever get rid of that. But you can build in institutions, you can build in uh, uh, sort of uh, traditions of knowledge uh, that are widespread in a population that, that uh, oppose those kinds of ideas and limit the possibility of them coming back. Uh, and the human, you start, we start with Solo Simpson, that's, I, I take my favorite quote from him. Uh, the line between good and evil cuts through every human heart. Um, it's true. I mean, we're not going to get rid of evil as long as they're humans. Um, we're also not going to get rid of good as long as they're humans. Um, and so the, all we can really do is try to uh, develop systems, uh, so that we, we can, uh, maximize the probability of good coming out into the world rather than the evil that we've seen during the last two and a half years. Oh, that's that's so well said, Jay. And um, I think as well about Girard, I, I don't know if you recall how he said the scapegoating mechanism ends. Do you remember? Well, you know, he's a Christian. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, so yeah, he uh, he came to Christ actually when he when he uh, uh, his uh, his uh, when he read the Bible, he said, "Look, uh, I, I can't believe a book like this was ever written." Uh, here's a story where. Everyone knows that, that the central hero is being scapegoated. Yes. Um, and the very fact of exposure of the futility of the scapegoating mechanism is what undermines it. That's it. Exactly. So by bringing things to light, um, as you're saying, by shining light on the dark, right? That's how you, that's how you get back to the good because dark is a shadow, uh, right? It's, it's not, um, a life force like good. It's kind of a lack. It's a negative. It's it's um, it's an energy sucker. It's not something uh, that has 
energy on its own. So you need to just kind of show it for what it is, and then you can actually come back towards the good. And um, I hope I hope that we're getting to that place. As you said, now on the two-year anniversary of the Great Barrington Declaration, uh, it appears that maybe uh, you were right after all uh, in this declaration, and there's some kind of uh, victory there, and not in being right, uh, but in that those principles uh, were right all along, or something like that, you know? Well, I, th- I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a cheat cake, I have to say. We just copied the old pandemic plan. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Kate. It was really a great pleasure to talk with you. Yes, it was so, so great. And uh, I hope that we can do this again. And um, yeah, I look forward to, uh, I look forward to hearing from our listeners. Let us know what you think. Let us know where you agree, where you disagree, uh, because that, after all, uh, is the nature of debate in let's, in what we can try and, and, maintain as um you know the enlightenment era let's let's not let it be the post enlightenment era let's hold on to it and let's reinforce those tenets and and keep it going thanks so much thank you Kate.